Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome John Schultz and Chris Colson to the show. We discuss the IAOT, we discuss how to choose sensors, and we discuss what companies get wrong when implementing an AI project. During this lockdown period, I've been hosting weekly webinars to not only bring the, the community together, but to get some of your questions answered on some burning topics. If you want to make sure that you're notified of each and every one of those webinars, go to robsreliability.com, sign up for the newsletter, and definitely sign up for those webinars. Also, if your company sells products and services to engaged maintenance and reliability professionals, I am offering some different sponsorship options with those webinars because, as some of you may know, some of those webinars are going to be turned into a podcast, and so there's a little more that you can do with it from an advertising perspective. So if you want to hear about that, send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. Lastly, I just want to make sure, again, that you guys are staying safe, both from a mental health perspective and a physical health perspective. Definitely focus on what you can control. I've been spending a lot of time recently meditating, using calming music, trying to really relax because I know that in the world there's a lot of pent-up energy, there's a lot of scarcity, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of uncertainty. So I think if you're out there and you're feeling a little bit anxious, you're feeling a little bit stressed, I, that's absolutely normal in this period. But what you need to focus on is how can you reduce that stress? That's really what I've been trying to do recently because I've noticed that I've been feeling it very strongly myself. So lean into some relaxing activities. See if you can just take that load off of yourself and then really get that self-care in. On that note, thanks for listening. Now let's get into the interview with John Schultz and Chris Colson. Hey guys, we are back and two special guests this week. We have Chris Colson and John Schultz. How are you guys doing? Doing extremely well, Rob. How about yourself? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good, Rob. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. Now, for everyone listening, John Schultz is the CEO at Bootleg Advisors, and Chris Colson is the Director of Strategic Accounts at Allied Reliability. Now, Chris, maybe we can start off with you. Can you give us a quick background on yourself? Like, how'd you get your start in reliability? Yeah, for sure. No problem. So, um, you know, by schooling, I'm an electrical engineer. I started actually as a um, as an electrician, and I worked as an electrician um, partly through my junior and senior year in, in uh, high school, and then all through college as I was going to, to become an electrical engineer. And I worked, um, you know, for my the first 10 to 12 years after graduating, as most uh, engineers do, uh, working for like an uh, um, electrical mechanical contractor, and I got the opportunity to kind of work in the industrial fields and, and really spread out across numerous different industry verticals, but mostly doing things like high voltage design, 
uh, doing install, doing maintenance on, on capital projects, and then working even in some food and beverage and pharmaceutical companies doing um, d- doing work from a design, control perspective design and installation. And, uh, and I got the opportunity to use some predictive technologies like uh, motor circuit analysis, infrared, power quality analysis, um, ultrasound. And I got to use those technologies, but primarily I used them kind of as, uh, as acceptance testing and then also in modes of where we were going in and troubleshooting equipment defects and, and, and problems that we saw. And it wasn't until I ran into Allied Reliability and, and worked with them for about a year uh, on a joint customer uh, engagement. And then I got the opportunity to kind of come onto that team. And uh, quite honestly, at that point, it was kind of like drinking from a fire hose uh, and surrounded by a vast array of knowledge and experience from on the maintenance and reliability side. Because most of what they were doing were things around predictive tech, using the condition base and predictive technologies, but using them really for the kind of the way the name sounds. And that's to drive reliability, not just to identify defects, but to drive reliability and, and execution of corrective work long before equipment ever fails. And so I've had that kind of pleasure when you ask about starting in reliability, quite honestly, learning from guys like John Schultz and having the opportunity to do that and be surrounded by uh, a great uh, vast array of knowledge within that organization. <laughs> so John, you know, Chris already gave you all the props. So let, tell us about yourself. Yeah. Uh, similar to Chris background was in engineering, although I double majored in mechanical engineering and economics uh, my first opportunity kind of on the manufacturing excellence side was uh, while I was actually still in college, uh, world's largest polyethylene manufacturing company out of, uh, out of Indiana had the opportunity to go in and uh, get a summer internship working in the accounting department, believe it or not. And uh, for the first several days of that job, all I was doing was taking manual manufacturing cards from the floor and with a 10 key keying in all the production data. And it didn't take me long to figure out that if I had to spend my entire summer doing that, uh, that it was going to be a long, long summer. So I started figuring out how that data actually got leveraged. And I found out that it got leveraged into production scheduling and job order costing. And over the, it ended up turning into a three-year gig for me while I was finishing up college where we went through and actually mathematically modeled the entire manufacturing process and redid their job order costing and master production scheduling. Uh, from there, I went on to Eli Lilly and Company and had the opportunity in my first couple of years with an amazing executive sponsor uh, to do all kinds of just different engineering roles. Most of them anywhere from three months to six months at a time, being a plan engineer, process engineer, uh, quality engineer, and a short stint in EH&S. And then one day they came to me and asked me if I'd like to be a reliability engineer. And I said, depends, what's that? And they said, hell, if we know, that's for you to figure out. And uh, it just so happened that it was also around the time that uh, 32 other companies had gotten together and formed SMRP back in 1992. And it gave me an amazing opportunity to go out and benchmark maintenance and reliability best practices back in a day when it was really just getting started. And if you wanted to see best practice for planning and scheduling, you went to the Alumac site in in, uh, Goose Creek, South Carolina. If you wanted to see best practices in RCM, you went to DeFasco Steel. You want to see best practice in MRO, you went to uh, you went to John Deere. You want to see best practice in Maximo, you went to GM. And just had an amazing opportunity uh, to learn un- under the tutelage of uh, what I consider giants in the industry. And uh, in 1997, after getting the opportunity at Lilly, 
left Lilly and started what was originally known as Allied Services Group. Work with a team of amazing people like Chris to actually grow that company. Uh, we're at peak, I believe we were up to about 500 people in the U.S. and Europe. Um, and then uh, now getting the opportunity after spending the last three years leading the digital transformation as a chief innovation officer at Allied, uh, now actually moving on to uh, work on additional IoT use cases, but I still have a uh, consulting and brokerage agreement uh, in place with uh, with Allied Reliability. Uh, I'll be I'll be Allied till uh, till the day they put dirt on me. <laughs> so I mean, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit there with with digitalization and the IoT, and I mean that's why we're we're here today to talk a little bit about and. For me, you know, obviously the first step with respect to the IAOT is the sensors. And some plants, they go down this route about, you know, we should just put sensors on everything. We should collect as much data as possible. Now, John, like, how do you feel about that? Should we just be putting in thousands of sensors? Like, how do we go about that process? Well, I often say that that's one of the big difference between what I consider to be maintenance and reliability professionals and companies that are going out there and doing pure play, uh, big data science, uh, pure play machine learning and AI, is that the, the standard Chevron model that was kind of brought to the market by the McKinsey's and the Deloitte of the world say that there's five Chevrons uh, interlinked that you first source your data, then you contextualize the data then you synthesize that data, then you orchestrate, then you engage. And this would seem to suggest that you take 100% of the data that is currently available or that you can get, and that you magically turn it into, put it into this machine that just cranks out algorithms and uh, finds all of your problems for you. What we found in more practicality as we begin to scale this thing is that we believe in, in, or at least I believe in, switching those first two chevrons. You have to contextualize before you source. If you have, if you don't fundamentally understand from RCM principles what the function of the asset is and how that asset can fail, you have no idea whether you're measuring the right thing with the right quality at the right frequency. So by first contextualizing it and understanding how the equipment fails, what those dominant failure modes are, uh, you can make sure that you have the right sensors for the job as opposed to just cranking on a whole bunch of data and going back and saying, hey, we found an anomaly does anyone have any idea what it means? Um, McKinsey did an interesting study of an offshore oil rig uh, with 30 million different points of, of data coming in and identified that 99.8% of the data at the end of the day ended up being data exhaust, meaning that it wasn't leveraged in any way. And I just find a whole lot of organizations really, really focusing way too much on the sensors. Uh, and not even really doing the due diligence to making sure that they're getting the right sensor to do the job. Now, Chris, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I love the thoughts that, that John has shared. And, and, you know, technology certainly has advanced to a level that makes makes it very possible to do what you say and, and to go out and install as many sensors as possible across all the different uh, pieces of equipment that are out there. But, uh, you know, I, I firmly believe just like John does, we've got to understand and frame the problem appropriately and, and understand what we're trying to achieve and contextualize that. As you said. And then after that, you know, it's, it then comes back to having the right data 
to drive the types of, of changes that we want to do across the organization. And so I, I like to ask, you know, what are we going to do with this information, right? If, if I have a bunch more data and a bunch more sensors in place, it's not not the, the fact that that's bad necessarily, but if it's not driving some sort of action, some sort of change and behavior change across the organization, it's really not going to add a lot of value. Yeah, I love it. And I, I mean, we see that everywhere, right? Like, that 98% of data that's, you know, not being used. Uh, I think that we see that all the time. And, you know, some people even argue, you know, it's the data quality. I don't necessarily agree it's the data quality. I think it's, there's a lot of processes and understanding that needs to happen as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Now, you know, John, you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit about using RCM and, you know, that's going to help pick us or help us pick the frequency and the failure modes that are detecting? Like, obviously, do you know of anywhere that anyone that uses sort of like these failure modes libraries or or these types of things with respect to the AI? Well, quite honestly, that's one of the biggest things that I believe differentiates what allied reliability has done from what everybody else has done in the market. Uh, we often refer ourselves as kind of the farmer's insurance of the condition-based maintenance market. You know, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Uh, since 1997, we've walked down over 1,400 facilities in 16 different industry verticals. We've cataloged over 3 million assets. When we catalog those assets, we not only cataloged them at the system level, the machine train level, the component level, the part level, but then we also attach all of the all of the engineered in failure modes as part of the failure modes library. But we didn't stop there. We then said, okay, based on those failure modes, what is, what are the, uh, what test measurement or inspection can you do to identify those failure modes based on that test measurement or inspection? What sensors are available in the marketplace? Not all vibration sensors are created equal. We've tested over 50 vibration sensors that people have come out with. Some of which people are literally, manufacturing in their garage. Uh, seven out of 10 don't even meet their own spec. Uh, and not, and some of them are for just overall vibration, whereas some of them have very strong F maxes uh, and lines of resolution and can find virtually any failure mode that vibration analysis can pick up. Uh, so from, from my perspective, you know, what we've done at Allied is we've taken not only that failure history of walking down and cataloging those 3 million assets all the way down to the sensor level, but then we've also written over a million work orders uh, since formation where we've documented in database problem, cause and remedy. And we've mapped all of that into the uh, smart CBM application that Allied has since launched. Uh, huge differentiator versus the companies that are going out and looking at this as just a big data science project, uh, applying a whole bunch of data science and AI. So Chris, I mean, when we're when we're jumping off that a little bit with respect to the diagnostics, like assuming we've made the right choices with sensors, we're getting data coming in. How do you go about, or how do you recommend we go about flagging these results to pick up, you know, these defects that we're seeing? Like, are we using an AI engine? Are we using like an expert rule system? And how do we actually map that to some meaningful output? Yeah. So, so Rob, I think that uh, John kind of hit on that a little bit, but I'll, I'll, I'll add to that. You know, I, I personally feel like um, it's a combination, right? 
there are some things that, that we're going to be looking at. And with many organizations we see implementing, it's not a complete strategy across all of their asset base. Uh, and there are some cases where they're using um, things like uh, Microsoft Azure and, and doing some machine learning. And, and so they've, they've tied some of the models and the algorithms that we created to, to monitor and identify, uh, not just using predictive technologies, but using a lot of the OT data that's available from, from the operational side and looking at and, and trying to create uh, not only supervised, but unsupervised algorithms to identify and give you some of the things that, that John kind of alluded to, and that's the inspection models, right? What are we seeing from this data and what what is the course of action that, sh that it should drive? And so there's some of that that's certainly going on and some organizations doing a lot of that. And then there's a, a number of organizations that are still stepping into this, you know, one foot in, one foot out, meaning they recognize that they've got some really critical pieces of equipment that they need to have those models developed for. And then as over time matures, then they start to add in some additional equipment and then on some of the other equipment that they're not currently using those systems and algorithms, they're still doing some route-based data collection and analysis to try to drive, again, some of the corrective work that needs to be done. Because, again, it's it's not necessarily about identifying it. That's great. We've got to identify it early. But unless we're executing corrective work to address it and change what's happening in the field, we're not really adding value. We don't add the value until we're actually doing the corrective work. I guess I I was going. I was just going to add what, a little bit to what Chris said. One of the things that I've that I've seen is that I've almost seen some organizations starting to regress back to old behavior, uh, where they're actually trying to use a technology to optimize their run to failure maintenance strategy. So the simple fact that they can get more samples more frequently, uh, trying to figure out whether they get that last little bit of goodie out of the uh, out of the asset, as opposed to a proactive approach or a proactive workflow model approach where they're using the technologies to identi early identification of defects that they can then plan and schedule the elimination of. But I'm almost beginning to see some organizations actually regress back to old habits of uh, trying to optimize that run to failure maintenance strategy. I agree, John. <laughs> That's the danger. <laughs> that is the danger. <laughs> so I, I guess I kind of want to build on that a little bit. Like, you kind of mentioned it, right? Where it's like, we need some fundamental kind of elements in place that, that drive through that work order process where whether like, like I don't really see it too differently. Like if we're going out, we're taking a manual vibration reading, or even if we're going out during a PM and we're doing a visual inspection, if we pick up a defect, we still need a way to close that work, right? Like identify the defect, send somebody out, Per, perform that corrective maintenance or whether that's, you know, maybe another inspection or actually do that work. Now, is there any way to avoid that? Or is that just how we need to work in 2020? I'm not sure that you can ever, and I want to make sure that I understand the question, Rob, because when you say avoid that, um, you're, we're never going to get away from uh, there needs to be some corrective work that needs to take place, Right. Um, we're going to get smart. We're going to be able to identify some things. And hopefully if we do this right, 
we identify giving ourselves lots of time in advance to be able to plan and schedule that work, to be able to look at our spare parts and make sure that, you know, they're optimized such in a, in a way that if I, if I've identified it and let's just take for an example, right? One of the metrics that I love looking at is mean time to implement. And when I think, when I say that it's like from the moment that I've identified a defect, right? And, and it doesn't matter whether I'm using kind of a, a, a route based walk around PM or if I'm collecting traditional condition-based condition, condition -based monitoring data, or if I've got a uh, you know machine learning algorithm in place, supervised, unsupervised, deep learning, whatever it might be. If I'm using those and, and I've identified a defect, the moment that I've identified that defect, the clock starts, right? And, and so when I think mean, mean time to implement, it's how long does it take me in the field to be able to go out and execute the work, the corrective work, that has been prescribed. And so when John again alludes back to some of the work that we've done over the last uh, 10 to 15 years at Allied, at least part of, part of where I've been involved and they were doing it long before I got started there, but being able to, to identify those defects, say, here's how, here's the prescriptive work that needs to be done to address that defect and, and get that back into the system. And then someone actually physically go out and change it. I don't think any of the algorithms and machine learning that, that takes place today will ever correct or, or, or make any adjustments to, let's say, operational parameters such that people don't have to go repair. I mean, we might be able to throttle back some on the operation side if, if we're seeing that, hey, sure enough, we've got a defect coming up. We know that it's or, or a, an impending failure coming. We know that the defect is there. Um, and, and we could possibly be able to kind of throttle some of the operations back to a point to where you can shut it down and be able to do that work. Maybe let's say, the, you know, within the next eight hours. We're hoping, again, that we're not going down that path that John alluded to, and that's that kind of trying to get all the goody out of it. But in, in short, we're still going to have to do some corrective work. And so if we're doing this right, we're always tracking that mean time to implement, regardless of how we identify the, the, uh, the defect. And we're trying to drive that number down below 45, 30 days. That's what good, good organizations will do. So I don't think we're ever going to get away from what comes out of this is some sort of corrective work that enters into my work execution management work stream and has to be planned, scheduled, and executed. Now, the one thing I was going to kind of add on to that is where I really think the uh, where with where technology has taken us, where the combination of the uh, condition monitoring data with the process data gets really exciting, is one of our largest clients has told Chris and I for years that. Uh, with regards to the P to F curve, you know, as you stop, I know Doug Plunkned has been on your show a few times and, you know, Doug kind of introduced me to the concept of the D to the I to the P to the F. And there's always so much concentration on the, when it comes to condition-based maintenance on the P to F, because that's when a defect has been identified in the asset. And uh, the client tells me that the day that, that point P happens is the day that it starts costing him money. The longer it takes from I to P, the more money they make. And so one of the things that gets me really excited about uh, finally being able to integrate the process data more seamlessly with the condition-based data is the simple fact that I can start identifying what is it about the way that I am currently running my process, that if I don't change the way that I'm running my process, if I don't put more net positive suction head on that pump and it continues to cavitate, I'm going to end up with all of these failure modes present versus if I can identify that because of the way I'm running my process, it has the potential to induce defects into my asset. Now all of a sudden I can make process variable changes 
and change the way that I interact with the asset. And now I have, in fact, just extended I to P in a way that I never actually had to do any corrective. Yeah, I love it. And I, you know, I've talked to Doug about that, the PDF curve too. And, and it's definitely the truth, right? If we can extend that installation to P and, and it kind of just even talking about, Chris, what you mentioned with, you know, at the beginning of the show about acceptance testing, like that is huge for a lot of people because you can reject defects coming in before you install them. So yeah, good stuff. Now, John, one thing I, I get asked a fair amount is sites they're looking to sort of skip steps in a sense. Like they want to, they, maybe they don't do vibration routes or they don't do a lot of predictive maintenance now and they're looking to go to this IAOT solution. Like, can they do that or are they sort of doomed to fail if they try? Well, you know, Chris and I often talk about the fact that it depends on what maturity level an organization is at because they can have all the measurements and all the defect identification in the world. But if they don't have a culture that is that is that can execute and plan and schedule the elimination of those defects, let's be honest, they can also over measure things uh, if they're not also committed to doing the execution. Uh, so what I would say with regards to uh, to that scenario is it's one of the things that we've actually built into the smart CBM application as well, going back to it based on, on what we've learned. And that is many times a client will say, we already have a lot of sensors installed. Can you simply take your application and install it and leverage the data that we already have? And we used to sit down and argue with the client for months, it felt like, uh, on why that was not a good idea. Today, our answer is sure, we can absolutely do that. But then what we actually give them once we do that is a confidence interval calculation, as well as we show them all of the defects that their current sensor stack can in fact detect and all of the ones that they're currently unprotected against. And that just absolutely changes the dialogue because it allows them to go through and do self-discovery. Well, what technology should I add? Well, what defects are going to be most important to you? What failure modes are most important to you? Based on those failure modes, here, here are the types of technologies that you could, should consider. Well, can I get away with a cheap $50 sensor or should I do, go with a $250 triaxial accelerometer with temperature or should I go with something that's a more expensive continuous monitoring sensor? Again, depends on the level of protection uh, that you're looking for in that particular asset. So it completely changes the conversation. Uh, absolutely, the more measurements and the more failure modes that, they, that they're protecting themselves against and that they're identifying, the more protected they are and the higher the confidence interval. But ultimately, I can't make that decision for them as a supplier. They own their risk management decisions. They know what level of risk they're willing to take with a given asset running to failure. All we can simply do is provide them with the tools and the subject matter expertise to let them know where, what level of risk they're taking by making that decision. Love it. Love it. Love it. Now, Chris, what are some common mistakes or misconceptions you see out there with people who are looking to implement like an IAOT solution? Some of it has to do with a little bit off of what John just said, and then I'll add to that some as well. Um, when, when John was talking about, you know, 
the question where you ask him about whether whether folks you know had the ability to if they just jumped right in this thing without having any maturity whatsoever i think some some of the misconceptions two things i think number one misconception is that first of all it's a it's a very tedious and maybe time consuming uh effort to do some of the things that he just addressed and i think that you know, if I rewind 10, 15 years ago without some of the use of the tools that, that I've been able to use with our customers uh, over the course of the last 10 years, that was the, that was probably the case. And if you think about, you know, the traditional RCM methodology, uh, you know, again, typical case, right? It's going to take quite a bit of time to kind of work through that. When I know what type of assets that I have, and I let's say at the asset type level, and then I know what kind of components make up those uh, those assets or those pieces of equipment, and I know what, what parts make up those components and how those parts fail and what those prescriptive type activities need to be, whether it's a, a you know CBM or, or predictive maintenance technology or a, or a PM task, when I know that kind of stuff and I can apply it at an asset type level and then and know with confidence that I'm going to have 70 to 60 to 75 percent of the type of failure modes that I'm going to run into and I can start to deploy that it's a it's a much faster approach than I think that some people believe it's going to be that's step one but there's a little bit of caution to that too because some folks will say oh well that means in one week we can be up and running and I think that is a that is one of the other misconceptions is that it, it does take a little bit of work. It's it's an elephant. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And you can't skip steps. You really have to understand what is it that I'm trying to identify. And once I know that failure mode, do I have the discipline to execute the work? Because if I don't have the discipline to execute the work, I've got to go back and start looking at things like um, management of change or, or, or change management and, and, and really driving the organization to, to support the technologies that we say that we want to implement and put in place. And so misconception, again, you know, I, I think thinking that it's a end all be all, I'll install this sensor and I'm going to have a bunch of algorithms. Um, you know, there are some base level machine learning algorithms that you can begin with, but almost every single one of those have to be built up and trained and supervised against something that is known. And then once you do that, then you can move towards more of that deep learning, unsupervised uh, type of algorithm. John, any thoughts on misconceptions? No, I would just echo what, uh, what, what Chris just said. I mean, people are looking for, uh, for a solution that's completely just completely out of the box and thinking that uh, they could no, no longer need uh, an analyst taking a look at the data. Uh, I will say that, you know, for a lot of the first pass standard uh, failure modes, it, it is just math and we can identify a lot of the defects, but a lot of the more complex ones and to actually get somebody in to take it to a, a higher level of prescription uh, is really where I think that people uh, underestimate uh, because at the end of the day, it's only the, the failure modes that people are willing to execute against. The prescriptions that they're willing to plan, schedule, and eliminate that defect that matter. And so if you have a system that is just simply cranking out a lot of anomalies and you do not have the system to turn anomalies into prescriptive work that people need to do. And then if you don't close a loop, once that work has been performed to actually verify that the elimination of that defect actually took care of the anomaly. And now all of a sudden, once you've done that to Chris's point versus supervised versus unsupervised, you now have a learning pattern 
that you can earmark and you can start looking for more new and interesting learning patterns from there. Love it, love it, love it. Now, John, what are your top tips for someone who's out there looking to implement an IAOT solution? Number one, I always recommend people start with the business case and the use case. So know what it is that you're trying to do and know what your business case for, whether it be IIoT and whether that IIoT use case is condition-based maintenance, whether it's connected frontline worker, whether it's energy intelligence, whether it is taking OEE to the next level of operational intelligence, whether it's intelligence around the way that you're managing your spare parts inventory, understand what use case you're trying to solve first, understand what the business case results of solving that use case are second. And then I would also just really uh, speak to buyer beware. Uh, There is a lot of, whether it be the sensors or it be the platforms that turn into a DIY project uh, or whether it be to a lot of the suppliers out there, there are just a whole lot of people that are making claims that unfortunately, whenever you see them in execution, they're just not able to live up to the claims. Chris, any top tips? Uh, you know, again, I love the way John kind of phrases that and he, he breaks it down. Um, when I think about it, if I'm talking to some folks that, you know, are just starting to, to dip their toe in this and, and I've seen some really, um, really mature organizations that are using uh, some of the machine learning algorithms. And they, had, they started back in 2004. Uh, and they were using at that time more of the process data information and building the the machine learning algorithms within um, you know data historians and and trying to pull, look at in one particular case that I'm thinking of you know they were they were looking at over sixty nine thousand points um, every five minutes taking data right and analyzing that to some point back back in 2012 2013 they were up to actually pulling in not just operational data but pulling in some of that um uh the uh, cbm data and, and the predictive maintenance and now they're up over they're up over almost uh 600,000 points of data and they're looking at that every five minutes they've got about 17,000 machine learning modules or uh, models that they've developed already about 5,000 of those are are classic um machine learning models again that supervise anomaly detection algorithm and they've got about 6,000 that they're they're doing more of that deeper learning modules and unsupervised unassisted and reinforced learning algorithms but that's somebody that's very very mature that started back in 2004 Right. So if you're starting out this journey, first and foremost, don't don't just think that you're going to jump right to there. It doesn't happen. Uh, you've got to start with that predictive maintenance journey. You got to first define the use case, understand what you're trying to achieve, what's realistic, and then ensure that you 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 already have and or can generate a data set that matches the use case that, that you're trying to go after. And then validate that your data set has a matching pattern to build your model, because if you don't have the right information, you don't have the the uh, what what typically we call that foundational elements really defined, um, then, then you're going to fall short and you're not going to be able to get the, the full value or the business case out of the, the effort that you're trying to uh, move forward with. But once you get evidence of a pattern and you have that built, you know, you're, you're on your journey to, to machine learning modules, uh, but it is an evolution and it is going to take some time. Awesome. 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 Now, Chris, where do you see the future of reliability going in the next five to 10 years? 
Oh man, you know, I, I think it's exciting times. And, and quite honestly, um, yeah, I lived kind of in that you know, 2007, 8, 9, 10, dealing with a lot of customers that, that um, looked at, at kind of the workforce and looked at it on the, on the side of, you know, we're, we're going to have quite a few folks that were retiring. And, and that's still a, a case today, right? But I do believe, though, that, that it's exciting times ahead of us because I think we have the opportunity in front of us to where we're going to have lots of, 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 of challenges. But with every challenge, there comes an opportunity and there's technology behind this today. And so being able to pull in some some younger generation, uh, I'm going to say young adults that, that have grown up with technology in their hands uh, we're going to be able to interest in and intrigue getting data scientists into the field of maintenance and reliability and working side by side with reliability engineers. So I think, um, you know, future reliability engineering, pulling in some of those major skill sets that we've had for traditionally over time, right? The reliability engineer, the maintenance craftspeople that, that really understand how things fail, why they fail, put that and couple that with some data scientists that are working alongside our traditional predictive maintenance technologists and also with our reliability engineers. And I quite honestly think we're going to be able to see some major productivity increases across North American industry. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I love, I, and I also think we're riding through some pretty exciting times in reliability. Now, John, how about you? What do you, where do you think we're going in the next five years? Well, you know, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, just to capitalize on what Chris said, what I'm seeing from the work that I'm doing with national association of manufacturers and their drive for uh, workforce of the future uh, is also just how much remote support AI augmented work instruction is going to play a tremendous role. Uh, in the past, all the focus has been on the uh, the individual sensors that you install without really the ability to take the data of the people that are physically in the field around the equipment every day and, and turning them into sensors. Uh, whenever people are going around and making general observations about equipment, not really capturing it in a way that, uh, that has been able to be leveraged in the past, with what I'm seeing happening right now in the whole area of augmented work instruction, leveraging AI into that augmented work instruction uh, to be able to, every time a job closes out, being able to give people just detailed insight as to how they need to improve the content that they're providing the people in the field and how they need to improve the training that they're providing them. Uh, the ability to be able to bring in remote support uh, to really be able to, to leverage the fact that, uh, you know, we're, we've got a huge exodus. Whenever you look at uh, National Association of Manufacturers benchmark data suggests that between now and 2025, not only are we going to be short about 2.6 million people in roles that we need them in manufacturing in the U.S. alone, just across their membership. But in addition to that, uh, 40 to 70 percent of the workforce is either retiring or going to have to be retooled. Uh, so I think that the interesting thing is that uh, with what's where where workforce development is going uh, and how I think we're going to really start seeing over the next three to five years, the convergence uh, of everything that's been happening since 2010, that convergence is low cost wireless sensors. That convergence is what's going on with the ability of doing high levels of compute at the edge with machine learning, with artificial intelligence, with truly being able to leverage augmented and virtual reality, not in a, 
necessary. I mean, the future is today. It's not necessarily just throwing somebody into a highly immersive experience if they can't leave their desk. It's about how do I deliver the content that the that the maintenance and reliability professional needs when they need it and the form that they need it to be able to safely and proficiently execute the task. And that is what I think is the next true uh, forefront uh, of where the reliability is going is actually arming the frontline worker. Love it, love it, love it. Now, John, I mean, as we're recording this, it's it's March fifteenth, and we're we're pretty much all on lockdown with the coronavirus. But do you have anything to plug? Like, obviously, conferences are a lot up in the air. But do you have a website? You want them to follow you on LinkedIn? Like, where where should they find you? A couple of different places that they can find me. As of today, the primary place to find me is on LinkedIn. Uh, our website is bootleg.life. Uh, and if you go to find the key, you can actually click on the lock and it will play an explainer, open up an explainer video for you. But what I'm also really excited to announce here for the first time in public, Rob, is that uh, on April 20th, uh, I will be officially launching on Voice America's business channel, Bootlegged Innovations. Um, and we'll be doing a weekly talk show. Um, and, uh, the first season will run 13 weeks. And, uh, if the first season goes according to plan, uh, hopefully we'll see many more seasons after that. So, uh, on voice America, starting March, uh, starting, uh, April 20th, uh, bootlegged innovations will, uh, will, will be out there and, uh, and hopefully, uh, we'll have a long run. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations on that. And if you send me a link for that, I'll, I'll put that in the podcast notes for everyone to check out. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Chris, how about you? Do you have anything to plug? Yeah. Hey, congratulations on that, John. I can't wait to, to listen in and hear that. Um, hey, um, I, I would say go to alliedreliability.com. You can find me also on LinkedIn and then um, not as frequently as I, I would hope, but I do have a blog and that's at uh, reliabilitycenteredenergymanagement.com. Uh, trying to get that kicked back up and Doing a little bit of redesign work right now that'll that'll relaunch and have a, a few more posts on it than what I've I've hit over the last couple of years. But uh, you know that's where that's where you can find me. And and Rob, I, I do want to take a second and just thank you for this opportunity. It's been a pleasure. As as uh, John mentioned, you know I, I I think you've done a tremendous amount of uh, of work of trying to uh, continue to interview the right folks. Uh, bring on to your show and really advance the topic of, of maintenance and reliability and, and uh, kudos for all that work. And I appreciate it. No, I appreciate, you know, I appreciate those kind words, Chris, and, and I appreciate you spending your time with us today. And definitely next time you're up in Edmonton, we'll have to, we'll have to hook up. So that'd be fun. Sure. As soon as the lockdown is over, I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Chris and John, I really appreciate you guys joining us today. Um, for everyone who's still listening, we appreciate you listening. And I hope you guys took some useful information just like I did from this podcast this weekend. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week.